0: the luminous possibilities podcast we offer a diversity of perspectives from many fields of medicine esoteric and ancient wisdom and subtle energy arts and sciences find deeply fulfilling pathways for co-creating yourself life and human communities around you find inspiring attunements to your own optimal living roadmap true authentic self and the most radiant frequency for living life to the fullest Hello and welcome to another episode of the Luminous Possibilities podcast. I'm Keenan, your host, and today I'm with June Sindesi. She's an emotional trauma specialist and counselor, and we're going to be talking about activating your emotional intelligence. Hi, June. How's it going?
1: Hey there. Speaking of emotional intelligence and nervous system regulation, keeping our system in check, I'm getting a little bit of putty to play with. To keep me in my body as I'm so excited to chat and connect with you today. Um, this is such an honor to jump on. I met you through a dear friend, Sophie Wolf and her partner as well. They're just miraculous, amazing people. So it's a lot of fun to be here and to share a little bit about my journey, my perspective, just one view on emotional intelligence and um, nervous system regulation is also another thing I love to chat on. So I'm really excited. Um, with the trauma work I do, I'm fortunate to work with veterans who have PTSD, sexual abuse survivors, as well as religious trauma survivors. And as a nutritionist, I work with people on emotional eating, uh, behavior and, um, other issues they have in their body, brain fog, digestion issues, hormone balance. And so I don't ever think that nutrition and emotion are separate. And I take a very, um, nervous system, stress management oriented approach to both of those practices, the nutrition and the trauma counseling.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. You've, you've got quite the, the credentials list and the, the um, experience. And I've been working personally with my nervous system now more consciously and intentionally for the last uh, about um, about a year um, and really kind of diving into it. And, and typically what I hear from most people who work in this line of, of work is that it's about a two year Process to when you really start working on your nervous system and really seeing how important that system is on pretty much er- every area of your life, whether it's nutrition or it's relationships and it's you know just being regulated in, in a in a um, in a moment or a situation with your partner or whether it's a friend or a colleague. I mean that it, it makes a huge difference to find a center, a centeredness and a sense of grounding in you know challenging moments of life. Um, would you would you say that's about correct two years is about what most people are looking for when they begin this journey? I mean, sometimes it depends on a lot of variables, of course, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that.
1: Yes, I think timelines are really helpful and, and important. And I want to thank you again for holding this space for us to dive in. One of my mentors, Christina Pearson, who started um, TLC, now known as BFRBs. Uh, dot-com <laughs> it was a nonprofit for people who excessively pulled their hair and picked their skin and I was one of those hair pullers and still have it come up um, she talked about when we re. she put together the first scientific advisory board for that specific disorder. And she knows a lot about the nervous system and brain. She talked about when we reset, it usually does take about two years to start to feel like we're in a new winter coat or a new spring coat. You know, we kind of shake off the old way of being and we unwind. Um, two years is a great way to gauge. I also love the 10,000 hour rule, the master's rule. I think there's a book about it. Um, It's three years to master something, 10,000 hours. Um, And so I I kind of love to gauge things as well as two or three years, seven years. We know our cells reset. Sometimes we see relationships start or end (laughs) at at seven years, um, or a new project emerge. And then in numerology, nine years is completion. Um, the forever 27 club. I had a poster of Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix on my wall growing up. They all died at 27, which equals nine, which is three cycles as well. I believe of this is going to be my math live, which is not good. 29 is not three times it's three times ta- it's four times seven right
0: four times seven is 28 and then we we would no. be at 27 with nine times three so
1: nine times three okay there we go thank you Mm -hmm. (laughs) so the nine cycle (laughs) i was hoping seven would work in there but it didn't so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways to look at the numbers and um what's been studied you know with a lot of this um self-development um self-optimization work we have empirical evidence and we have anecdotal evidence and we're seeing that a lot during the pandemic people arguing about that data Um, empirical numbers as and then like anecdotal information. And a year and a half, two years, isn't really enough to have a lot of empirical data. But what we know with a lot of stress management, with a lot of um, self-development, self-optimization work, is that people have extreme diagnosis like Parkinson's or Lyme disease and autoimmune disease, or they're you know, stage four cancer and they're willing to try anything. They're, try, they're willing to try new things to regulate. A lot of them have come from the East and now we have the science to prove it. We've only had brain kind of science literature In terms of using a microscope or the technology that we have for about 30 35 years so that's really changed the way that we approach trauma, because we can't study the brain actively living and take it out of the body like we can other organs Um, so. When it comes to numbers, it, it can be very helpful for certain individuals to help them gauge. We live in a, a society in a world, this modern technological world where everything's so fast, a light switch, um, you know, looking up information that used to take people 50 years to try and figure out and find connecting the dots we can find in three seconds on Google. So I feel for the younger generations as well as my younger self when it came to my expectations of how to rewire my brain, how to rewire my nervous system in terms of numbers on the brain or habits. We used to think it was 21 days for a new habit. Now we know it's 66 days, which connects a little bit more to the addiction models of 90 day recovery programs, you know, more close to the three month range, but numbers can be very helpful for certain individuals to help them pace themselves, which is important with building new habits.
0: Yeah, totally. It fits in pretty well with the way we, Typically, do things coming out of this sort of mind-body dichot- dichotomy, and, and where we kind of come from that Cartesian dichotomy and reductionist science, where we tend to, you know, reduce things, reduce things, reduce things into something smaller and separate. But um yeah, we're we're entering into, I think, a more accepted mainstream model and view- viewpoint paradigm of holistic health, um, and seeing these interconnected webs and. Yeah. I like, I like how you're pointing to the the qualitative aspects and um, yeah, is there um, in in your own journey? I'm curious about how you um, got into this line of work, you know, like, was there, of course, there's probably a moment where you had something with your nervous system or maybe a realization or an insight around, Hey, something's a little off here. Like, you know, was there something you ran into an event? Uh, What got you down the path?
1: Yeah, I'd be honored to share a little bit of my life history that led me down these paths. I'd like to share when we were speaking about, um, you said something before that question on the nervous system, on um, the different ways of gauging stress management, mm-hmm. that what we've seen too, during the time of the pandemic, where there's been some arguments is the lack of respect for BIPOC medicine. You know, I think I say it right. Um, black... Um, I always mess it up, BIPOC. So you know how it's Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so what is really interesting to look at through medical literature is it's through one vein of what is acceptable in terms of medicine or healing versus Asian, Black, Indigenous, other forms of medicine, healing, nervous system regulation. You know, if it's not in a white coat and connected to a scientific literature art, you know, article, then somehow it's not, um, empirical data. And, um, I'm very much a fan of oral history because we know during certain times in history, I think it was called the orange coats in iron Ireland. I had a mentor telling me about this, this morning where on, you know, sent from the queen, they were kind of like a Nazi regime, some people would say in Ireland, where they were burning books, burning people, you know, really putting the iron and the hammer down on what was allowed. And oral history is what kept their culture, their mysticism, their healing modalities alive. And that's what I studied in um, college. And I majored in because I, part of my journey was, I had learning differences. I, I was one of those kids who would go into that room, and I had that extra time on the test because my parents had me tested and proved that I had ADD or learning issues. And so, in school, I went to a school where you had to read two hundred pages per two hundred pages per night per class. And the Sarah Lawrence College was like a baby six sister of Oxford, so the academic academic regiment uh, requirements were very rigorous but i found oral history journalism i went there to to double major in genetics and anthropology because i was interested in different perspectives of human nature as well as you know what we could see under a microscope i could not keep up in the genetics classes now i get to study neuroscience but more on my own um (laughs) timeline Um, and anthropology, they didn't have classes, but when I found oral history journalism, and I'm bringing this in, and I'll tell you why in a moment, my teacher said, you don't have to input and output the way that, you know, other classes might have you do in a linear formed paper. What you can do is create a multimedia exhibit where you use film, you use video, you use um, crafts, you use, you create a museum exhibit to share what you've learned, um, and so that really helped me engage more of my brain, engage more of my system in how I wanted to show what I'd learned. And why I think oral history is so important, oral history journalism, differently than journalism, which I my mentor worked for the Columbia Oral History Archives, And was all about oral history journalism rather than classical journalism, and I would kind of pressure him. And I decided to go to Israel and Palestine and study under CNN, Al Jazeera, Jerusalem Post, and see like why doesn't he like regular journalism? And what I learned from all the journalists there is, they had these big hearts full, wanting to tell the truth, and then they'd they'd work for these big agencies and companies, and there was an agenda placed on them. Of when they interviewed someone, they had And, you know, a motive of where they wanted to get in terms of an answer, in terms of what agenda or narrative they wanted to draw, rather than oral history journalism, the person you interview leads you to where you're meant to go um, and the truth of their story. So I bring this up because of what I do with female biology and um, what I teach a, a lot around female biology and the differences in our our neurological differences our metabolic differences our sleep differences as women that now only for 25 years we've had a lot of more empirical data on because women um, were seen to be the same as men and women were in the homes we weren't in the white coats you know leading the experiments Um, and we were being, we were being shown female biology through a male lens, which was an issue. But what we know in the oral history storytelling passed down is that we've had these awarenesses of the different ways that women function in terms of how they work, in terms of how they digest, in terms of how their brains operate, um, passed down from the red tent, the moon lodge, the blood hots. We know this. Um, but it was passed down orally. And so oral history is something very important to me. When I was young, around three or four, I had um, tigers scratching at my belly, is what I told my mom. And they had me go to a doctor where I had um camera taken down my stomach and pictures taken and then in, in, in uh, kindergarten showing people the inside of my belly. Um, and they told my parents, Of course, when I share my story, I always preface it that I was a sensitive kid who experienced my life the way that I did. It might not have been the quote unquote truth, but what I remember and what the stories I've been told now I use to empower other people from what I've learned. My parents or brothers or aunts and uncles might've seen it a whole different way, but I heard the story that the doctor said to my parents, she has extreme anxiety. There's nothing wrong with her stomach. Um, you guys need to go to therapy. It could be something in the environment. And they're like, no, you need to fix her. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the environment. Um, and now we know with epigenetics, you know, certain environments, um, can trigger certain genetic expression, turn on and off genes. So they gave me placebo pills and I felt like a very good girl at five and six taking my pills. I still love taking my pills to this day. If they're supplements or something I'm taking, And I thought that I was getting better. But what I was realizing was that um, it wasn't really something that my mom and I chat a lot about now um, as encouraged to share my emotion. And my mother would make a face at me, kind of hard face is what I've been able to regain a memory of. And I asked her, when you'd make this face at me, like stone cold face, when I had emotion, were you angry at me? And she said, no, I was angry that I didn't know how to comfort you. And so we've had a lot of cool resolution around the fact that she's like, I sometimes didn't know how to comfort my own emotional distress. And now I'm supposed to know how to do it for my little baby doll. You know, this is really hard. So from that, from that time forward, the kind of way that I explain it is I, I wasn't emoting externally as much. My older brother, he was able to express more, externally and sometimes we see it in families where one expresses very externally and one expresses very internally and i explain it that you know i'd be on the playground and i have my gut instinct we have 500 billion um you know neurons and sensors in our gut and we have only 100 billion in our brain we have more you know gut feeling We have interceptors and extraceptives. We have more introceptors than extraceptors. We have more introceptors than extraceptors. And I would be on the playground and then I'd, I'd want to learn how to fit in. So I'd have a gut instinct that something that the cool kids are telling me to do goes against what the principal or the teacher would want me to do. But I wanted to fit in. So I started to learn to ignore my gut instinct. And then I kind of share that it goes up so my gut instinct, then if I'm ignoring that, what's left is my heart. And I start to have my parents not interact with me in the right moment or time that I might need their unconditional love, which is so unrealistic, or I might get my heart broken and I start to distrust my heart. So if we're looking at the brain, it's like the autotomic, more reptilian system, the, the brain stem, the limbic system, and then the prefrontal cortex. So I stopped listening to my gut. I stopped listening to my heart and all I'm left with is my um, newest brain, my, my rationalizing brain. And I'm trying to figure everything out all the time. And then I started, so I started with the tummy issues. Then I started to have ADD where I couldn't focus easily and I couldn't sit still. And then I started to pull my eyelashes out because I, my brother had cancer. My dad dad had cancer. My parents were helping the others that were in dire need. And I didn't know how to regulate and share my emotion at that age. I didn't know how to circulate very well. And so what I thought would be easier is something that caused more physical sensation, which was pulling out an eyelash than to feel the amount of sensation that um, was coming through my body emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so I was really lucky and it was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me um, to start pulling my hair. It was very frightening, though, for the people around me to see um, me pull my eyelashes out and then my hair out and have bald spots on my head. Because, you know, in any other species in the animal kingdom, sign of distress, sign that something is out of balance. And when you do something long enough, you start to do it and you don't have as much awareness. And so that brought me to the study of awareness training, where Viktor Frankl from Man's Search for Meaning, he developed Logos therapy in Europe. He was in Auschwitz. Um, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. he will talk about like stimulus and response. And the gap in between is choice and being able to grow that gap. In college, I developed a disordered eating behavior, binging, purging, more binging for me. So somehow I'd make it from this side of the house to my kitchen, open the icebox and be at the bottom of the ice cream container and not know how I got there. Same with I pick my hand from here to here and I'm pulling hair. That's really fast. <laughs> um, awareness, only one second versus 15 steps is a little bigger amount of awareness that I'd have to learn to increase. And so with my hair pulling and then the eating, um, disordered eating behavior that is now in remission, I started to really learn about nervous system regulation, which I can chat a little bit more about with you. And I started to really learn about um, reframing my sensitivity, not as a crippling force, but as an empowering um, superpower, Dr. Christie mentor and colleague would say, and I, um, I started to see, you know, how do we train this awareness? What brain science do we have? What martial arts masters can I study under? Um, and, and how will that change how I interact every day with the way that I respond to a partner, the way I respond to a client, the way I respond to myself most importantly, or a child, um, so that's a little bit of my background. And I was very interested in the different flavors of God, basically, out of the womb, like five years old, pulling on my dad's shirt sleeve, wanting to hear how other people experience God. And so I had the great fortune through the oral history and other um, opportunities. From an early age, to start studying and learning from different tribes around thirty countries, I went to by the time I was twenty-four. Um, listening and learning to how other people experience the world, trying to find the same mm, rhythm or pulse or um, you know ingredient involved with all beings, um, and, and find the oneness over separation. So I was very interested. In um, different traditions, healing modalities and different traditions, perceptions of God, as well as, um, you know, their safe place or how they found peace and not judge that because I knew what it was like to be in my nervous system, which was so different than others in my own family in under one roof. So I wanted to have more understanding for others and what it was like for them to be in their system and the way that they saw the world.
0: Wow. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you, first off, for for sharing your story and being vulnerable and taking us through the moments where, you know, you're pulling your hair and you're just, you know, you're just in those kind of sensitive um, places. It's not always easy to share from that place. So confidently and just, you know, connecting with you, I can feel like how how maybe how um, long you've you've come from your journey from having like the kind of gut stuff and maybe some anxiety and like really just holding yourself so confidently. And, um, yeah, I can, I can just feel so much of, um, the work you've done on yourself. So nice, nice work. And, um, yeah, one of the things that stood out to me was this idea of circulating. Like one thing you mentioned was circulating, like I wasn't able to circulate and I'm, I'm curious if you want to touch on maybe like defining that. It sounds like that really is, um, one way to to sort of tell if someone has activated their emotional intelligence, if you are circulating with someone or you, the exchange is the way I'm seeing it is, um, sort of like a reciprocal mutual exchange you know, you're in some ways, um, you know, doing the energy work and body work I've done over years, you know, circulation is so important. And if there's anything stagnant or blocked or, you know, and something's not circulating and flowing and sort of like, you know, you can just imagine the circle as a symbol for health really. And yeah, if there's any side of that circle broken and, and there's not things flowing, then um, I mean, really emo- emotions are energy. You know, I think about them as energy and motion. It's just another way of, of seeing it. So how do you, do you, is that terminology you use in your world circulating? Yes. Yeah.
1: And I always like to preface that I'm a work in progress, still have urges to pull my hair. I have, still have times where I have to find and rebalance and continually look at how I might using my skills on myself and um, don't really believe in finished products personally. But I believe we're all ready whole, even if we're doing work here in this body. So my mentor, Christina Pearson, uses a concept called venting, which I use that terminology as well. And I explained it a little bit um, when it comes to some of the nervous system education that I've been given around optimal states of arousal, hyper aroused, you know, optimal state of arousal, clear headed hyper aroused is like agitated, um, can't feel myself on the seat, buzzing, uh, anxious, and then, you know, optimal state of arousal. Is clear headed, you know, able to be in both the body and the mind, and then hypo aroused, which is, you know, kind of lethargic, depressed, don't see a use, very heavy. And um, a lot of us trauma survivors just go in and out of hyper aroused, hypo aroused, really revved up, really revved down. And what we want to look at is how to expand that optimal state of arousal, how to expand that awareness and that state of being able to have choice. That gap, Victor Frankel talks about, and so when I wake up in the morning, I have to really look at, you know, my cup might not be empty in the morning. My cup might be this full in the morning, possibly a big emotional upset um, the night before, or a poor night of sleep, or poor choice of food. There could be many hidden irritants. Doctor Christie introduced me to that word, um, that build up in the system, and so we want to look at what hidden irritants are affecting us. You know, is it, um, there's a SCAMP model designed by um, Charlie Menesueto? It's like a kind of um, comb B, like a DVT, CBT, um, for excessive body-focused repetitive behaviors and talks about sensory, cognitive, affective, motoric, place, environment-oriented stimulants. So, you know, am I, am I racing about someone it's common around the pandemic and the virus that's going on. And am, am I physically in a lot of discomfort? Three years ago, I fell 25 feet and I broke my back and ankles and have worked on that recovery and sometimes have some back issues that could be tweaking me. And that can be adding water to my cup that day. I could have some emotional distress going on. I could have some environmental stress going on. If I'm staying in my childhood bedroom for two weeks, we know literature that says, your blood pressure goes up, you know, 10% just walking into your childhood home. So what I like to look at and encourage the people I have the honor of working with to look at is where am I with my hidden irritant level that day? And how can I vent that? As Christina would say, how can I release that? And what are my tools to do that? So that when I vent it, at the end of the day, I'm not up to here, as people say, And my choice and awareness, my gap is so small that somehow I've made it to the ice box and I'm down the box of ice cream and I don't know how I got there. And so this is a constant effort for me being someone who has one second to stop my hand from going up to my head and pulling out a hair. If I get stuck on a question I'm trying to answer or something like that. So this is going to be never ending work for me. I feel like I came to this life with ninja training (laughs) assignment. For awareness. Um, But what I encourage people to do is figure out how to shift their sensory system. And the easiest way to do that is through the, the senses, through sight, through sound, through temperature is the biggest one for me. You know, putting my feet in a hot foot bath will help me rev down if I'm revved up, putting myself in a bath and working from there. Um, something cold will help me rev up a cold shower ice. I was in a restaurant the other day and I, um, didn't want to start pulling at my hair to finish a project, even though I was so tired and I was hoping people weren't looking. And I literally started pouring a whole glass of water on my head and my clothing to change my physical state. They call it, you know, radical changes in your physiology so that I can take all the emotion and the self-judgment out of it. You know, the reasoning doesn't have to always be as important as the physical state of receptivity or clarity. And so I poured that water on my head and I sat for five minutes and I breathed and I listened to something that helped me just recharge, but vent out and give me a little bit more space to work from. And five minutes can really do it if we're super intentional. I'm really lucky to have a really understanding and highly emotionally intelligent partner. And a lot of transitions is something important for highly sensitive people to look at, can affect me. If we go one place that's really crowded, then we go to another place. Sometimes we won't do that much, but I'll be in the car and I'll say, I have to stop and listen to something for five minutes or I'm about to... For me, what would happen is I get so out of body that I'll trip a lot and I'll break bones. That was a pattern for four years where I broke both my ankles twice and then I fell off a cliff. wasn't good. Um, but what I recommend is learning. How do I shift direction? How do I shift direction and release? Do I go on a walk? Do I get in the bath? Do I take a shower? Do I take a cat nap? And what has been my pattern of what length I have to get to before I shift direction? You know, for me pulling out a, a hole in my head, a big bald spot. It's like, oh no, something's wrong. For other people, they haven't eaten for four hours. Oh, I need to shift direction. And so what I think I like to look at is how can I shift direction and vent, you know, release some of the energy that's building up before my body's screaming at me? How can I listen to the gentle whispers of, I have an ache or pain, like right now. Okay. I've been sitting this cross-legged too long. I have an ache and pain in my quad so I'm going to shift a little bit or I'm going to ignore it for the next 30 minutes chatting and it's going to build up and I'm going to get a little grumpy and short with my partner or with myself and then it's not really worth it I'm curious what that brings up for you in terms of what it brought up for me when you spoke on circulation
0: yeah right it's um it's a really great set of tools you have of understanding how to Yeah. I understand where you're at. And I I just love the, the glass full analogy, like the water kind of raising up. And, um, I see that whole, like kind of gap from the bottom to the top as, um, more or less just, yeah, the, the, the threshold you were talking about earlier and, you know, as the water raises up in some ways, like you have less, you have less space in the bottle and there's less of a choice, um, in the moment and you're, you're sort of filling up with stress. Um, for me, I mean, yeah, it, things kind of, you know, accumulate and um, everyone has stressors and the way you describe how the the different stressors come in, you know, you could be holding an emotional stressor from something that was left unspoken or, you know, um, maybe it was a conversation with someone and something was a little off, but then you're stepping into another moment or maybe you get right into your car and you're going to traffic and there's these things that kind of stack onto each other as well. Um, So it's really just interesting to yeah, to think about stress in a different way and to realize that our, our emotional intelligence is, is linked to the way we're sort of shifting direction directions in our lives. And and we're able to find that moment of choice or like just kind of the moment of being like, all right, actually, I don't need to keep going down this. I don't need to, to keep having the momentum I have in this direction. I can just change a little bit. Um, and for me, it's just usually a breath. I mean, I learned this little technique um from a friend Kevin Wong and um I did a podcast with him earlier and, and he was talking about the sustainable you and it's this box breath and he's he brings a lot of mind body breathing exercises into his work and it's just a really simple one I mean I I've, I've done um you know quite a number of years of yoga and there's there's various pranayamas and there's um just you know the ujjayi breath that goes along with the asana practice and there's Lots of that, that for me, if I start my day with that, then I'll have a lot more, the water really drops for me and I can have a lot more space. And it feels like I'm just much more present with most of what's going on that day. But the simple four breath box breath is really great because it's just a, a four count, four count, four count, four count. And it's your inhale, hold, exhale, hold. And so it's just a very simple, you know, 16 second sort of shift in direction that you can do. And sometimes what we do is we find ourselves holding our breath. You know, I, I find like, if I'm going, if the water's getting high, like I'm like, Oh, and I notice it and my awareness comes in, then, then I have a shortness of breath my awareness will show me that. And then sometimes I'll just kind of emphasize whatever that stressor is. So if I'm holding my breath, I'll actually just really hold it and then just kind of hold it. And then you have, you kind of have no choice, but to release and like really breathe more heavily so I think that can be helpful. It's sometimes um, just saying, "All right, let me let me place more of my awareness in the moment with the thing that's causing me the stress. Maybe it's the shallow breath, or it makes me think like if you were pulling your hair, like I wonder if you actually reach to pull your hair, but then you do it with more awareness, and you know instead of it being such an unconscious thing. Because I think a lot of this, to me, is really um, bringing more of the unconscious world to the to the conscious world. And so as soon as you have awareness of something, sometimes things shift and there's a, there's a change that sort of automatically happens. And if something's unconscious and you're able to kind of, you know, reenact that in a way, in a conscious way, I think that's pretty helpful. So that's kind of my reflection of what was coming through with me.
1: Yeah. Growing the gap of awareness, because I think stress is natural, you know, like in, in, what a lot of people, Dallas Hartwig is a great mentor of mine, who, you know, designed Whole30, which took the country by storm. He talks a lot about seasonal, you know, solutions, where we can use our brain, we can use our body, we can use our metabolism differently, depending on the system, the season we're in, because we're activating a different system in terms of our biology responding to Um, this age-old seasonal nature of our planet that the light triggers our brain to start to operate differently. Um, The season, the the weather, like we're saying, the sensory response that the nervous system has, we're gonna be triggered to act, interact, relate, eat differently in the cold than we are in the heat because our system is intelligent. Our nonverbal system is intelligent. And he chats about how there's a great book he just wrote, uh, Four Season Solution, with a lot of literature, um, science-based research around, you know, stress is not a bad thing. And summer is when we have maximum expansion, maximum pushing pressure, stress on ourselves. We expand, the daylight is longer, we do more, we exercise harder. But chronic stress, can lead to chronic disease. So chronic summer can lead to chronic disease. And a lot of us who are in this chronic stressed mode of technology, little sleep, exercising hard every day, you know, little to eat because we're on diet fads, whatever it is, is very confusing for our biology. And it's not natural. (laughs) Um, And so I'd say there's no shame in if certain days we have to take nine breaks and other days we have to take three breaks in order to gain that mental clarity and focus and expand the gap of awareness to make better choices. I think a lot of us, we have this shaming. I'm not into comparing pain. I'm not into, you know, it's not for me <laughs> um, sh- or shaming each other of what should be or what could be one day versus another. Each day has a different set of circumstances and for ourselves as well to be gentler and to be more um, just perspective, have perspective. And I'm really fortunate to have this incredible partner that I do life with because he'll say, you know, I have some hidden irritants today in my body. I have this pain in my back or Something happened in the office. And then all of a sudden it takes this emotion. A lot of us, we grow up personalizing things because we rely on our caretakers' um, responses to get our needs met. But then in adulthood, we continue this interaction with the world of waiting for someone's response to see if I can feel safe or calm in my system instead of taking responsibility for my system. And so what's really great is communicating with family members and others And I'll communicate now with my family members. I'm in a really tender, tired space today. I cannot talk about charged subjects. And I might not be able to talk as long as usual. Or living with someone and sharing with them, I have a lot of hidden irritants. Then the other person in the home or in the roommate situation doesn't take things as personally because um, they see like, oh, there's a whole other world outside of me. A lot of us are just living in our own me, me, me world. And so being able to communicate about hidden irritants and where we're at, I think, is a very emotional, intelligent way of communicating. And um, I'd love to speak a little bit more on emotional intelligence in a moment as well.
0: Please do. Did you want to go into that now?
1: Yeah, something was there and it left me a couple of minutes ago, but it'll come back.
0: Yeah, no problem. In
1: terms of emotional intelligence, I think there's many ways that people could describe it, but I think as women, women weren't as in part charge of leadership decisions as men in the old times, which weren't that long ago. Um, And women, they had to, and a lot of women I think would agree respond off nonverbal cues to know what was happening if they weren't informed of decisions being made. So a lot of us, I think, feel overwhelmed with our sensory systems. And when I do lectures and presentations, um, I'll always have an essential oil present. And my um, assistant and the alchemist of Syndacy Wellness, the little um, wellness center that I run, she's a essential oil guru. And so we'll say, let's do an essential oil that is based on um, the second chakra and awakening the abdomen and healing belly pain and all these things. So we'll have 30 people in the room and they'll all smell the scent. And I won't tell them what the scent is supposed to be for quote unquote. And I'll ask three people, what was your experience of that scent? And someone will say, I, I felt like this brain fog lighten and this clarity come in my head. Oh, I felt this pain in my shoulder release. Oh, I felt this um, bubbling or this heat in my belly when I smelled the scent. And what I always love to bring up is that, you know, Paul Check for an example, he's a great um, wellness educator in the industry. will say we're as different as on the outside as we are on the inside. We all have different intestine lengths. We all have different gene expressions. We all have different responses to different chemicals. And that's an example of we have a lot of extraceptors and we have intraceptors, but we have more intraceptors than we have extraceptors, which is our internal sensory system. But we're not taught to train those to be able to differentiate and be aware of what's being signaled. And then we can't become our own best doctor because all of those Women or men in the presentation had a different reaction to that scent. Thank God nobody's had an anaphylactic shock or anything, you know, but some things are toxic to people. My cousin's allergic to penicillin. I'm not, you know, and so starting to become aware of how certain things affect us and our introceptive nature is so important in order to take care of ourselves and activate our superpower from that emotional intelligence. I um, love this book called Atomic Habits based off a lot of habit research that a man named James Clear did. And he spoke a lot about structure when we create habits, you know, put the gym shoes by the door so you remember to run. Don't keep the apples in the crisper, put them on the table so that your subliminal message to eat them and they don't rot. Get more veggies and fruit and And I always kind of identified as an artist. I never do anything the same way. I never do anything the same way twice. And what I started to see though, was that when I created structure for my own sensitivities, I needed to sleep a certain amount or I needed to do certain things different than others. um, That structure allowed me to grow stronger and allowed me to really nourish. And an example for me is, being on my phone i have a lot of circulation that happens a lot of people messaging or social media we compare each other or we see news on social media and a lot of us already don't watch the news because we know especially certain people with certain genetics that their blood pressure can be heightened by the news that once i started to take on more responsibilities and more projects and wanted to be effective and clear-headed on the weekends that it's not the best for me to have my phone on and circulate. And my, my family knows they could reach me through my partner or we're we're both going to turn our phones off. But the fact that on the weekends, I'm starting to reset, I'm starting to kind of empty out my mind and the mental chatter and all the circulation that goes on through my phones and my technology um, really has changed my ability to be clear headed and function at a higher capacity during the week, as well as have space and emotional flexibility for my partnership. And one day if I want to become a mother too. So I think that everyone learning their own needs is really crucial. And a lot of us weren't encouraged to have needs growing up because we were a bother or we were a hassle or we were trouble if we had needs you know, certain something hurt our belly when we ate it. Well, that's all you're getting for dinner tonight. So learn to just eat, ignore your symptom, or, you know, Mm -hmm. your reaction. And so I think, you know, being able to go through terrible twos, as John Bradshaw, who's big in identity development work, inner child work, would say, even if you're 30 or 40 is really important so that you know your needs, you know your limitations, you know what you need in terms of structure in order to grow strong. And that um, that's when true artistic genius can sometimes come out uh, when people are given the, the right circumstances to grow. But first, we have to figure out what those needs are. and We have to learn how to listen and feel big things. For me, It was like a water, I was a water hose. A man named Steve Kim, he's a brain trainer, gave me this example. And then there was a fireman who turned a fire hose on and it was going through the water hose. And it was like, I was going to explode because I hadn't started any somatic resourcing. When you did that box breath, we teach a lot of PTSD victims, not victims, survivors, box breath to psychosomatic, go from the brain and body, connect, and not stay imbalanced, to somatically resource themselves. Um, I wasn't taught any of these exercises or skills of how to expand my capacity to feel. And I have to continue to do it as I continue to have different stressors um, and expand my responsibilities there as well.
0: Right. Yeah, there's, there's so many ways to expand um, how we understand our stressors and just knowing that there's hidden ones, just that alone, I mean, gives us a kind of opportunity to say, get curious and sort of just wonder like, Hmm, like what are the subtle ways in which these things get triggered and held and in the body? Um, so somebody comes over to you and just says like, Hey, I'm, I'm looking to really, you know, I feel out of touch with my emotions. I'm not, you know, I'm not feeling like I'm in flow in my life. And, um, I get circulating in these patterns where they're not helpful. I'm in these loops and there's things that happen that, keep me stuck or whatever it is. Is there something, is that there, I mean, I think you've spoken to so much of the complexity of how these things fit in and how there's not necessarily like, you know, one glove that fits everybody's hand, but um, is there, is there a certain protocol or like, what would you basically say to someone that says, Hey, I want to, I'd like to activate my emotional intelligence. You know, what do you recommend?
1: To activate the emotional intelligence in my opinion is to, get to know your sensory system and how to regulate it, which also has to do with regulate your nervous system. So become curious, like you said, around what are hidden things that are building up in me that are making me less emotionally intelligent. Because I think, you know, if we want to interact from an emotionally intelligent place, we want to be in the most receptive, clear-headed space. So in terms of, you know, being able to activate our prefrontal cortex, for example, if we're in our animal brain and and our physiology is scared, if we're feeling tense, if we're feeling overwhelmed, if we're feeling like we're not sleeping, we have no appetite, these are things that our primal center is not feeling very safe to nourish. So, you know, getting in the bath and kind of decompressing. If you're feeling like you always have things building, you'll be in a calmer, more receptive and clear headed state. And when I say the sensory system, becoming a master and investigating your sensory system, being allowed to have things you like and don't like and figuring out what those are. Because not everyone's safe place is going to be the same. Not everyone's calm place. And for example, sound is a great way to set the system. Sound that gets me in a very calm, vibratory place might not be the same sound that my brother would use to get in a calm and vibratory place. You know, they call it the flow state. Um, And there's an exercise that I love where people activate um, the energy in their hands. I don't know if you've seen those exercises where they Rub their hands together, they clap their hands, and then they kind of bring their fingertips together and tap their fingertips maybe 30 times, and then feel in, in between their hands. It's, um, we have 9,000 cell receptors on our hands. So it's easiest to feel our subtle sense, our nonverbal senses in our hands first. Um, and the mind usually goes blank when I do this exercise with someone. Because I think if we're really in our head, it's hard to, and we're thinking a lot, it's hard to be in a clear headed place. Or if we're around someone who we really wanna impress or we have charges with, that might not be the first person to practice your emotional intelligence with because your body might be in a habit of being reactive towards them. So what I would do is I would start to investigate ways to get your system in a safe, calm, receptive state. And those would be through temperature, through scent, through visualizations, through sound, through light. Um, These things will help start to see what helps me regulate my system to get back to a clear-headed state where I'm not in an aggressive, reactive mode, but a receptive, calm, contemplative, I'm able to access all of my brain mode.
0: Nice, beautifully. Yeah. That's, that's a really nice, um, sort of like basket of tools. I think people can grab and kind of just play with, I mean, it, there's so much in that, um, the, what I wonder at this point, just kind of thinking about, you know, a reactive, Scenario, say with a partner or someone that's very close to you, or you feel you you're around a lot. Maybe um, it's a family dynamic. You know, you're with a sibling or parent or cousin, any any family member. Um, say there's say that you're with you're around that person quite a bit, and there is some reactive tendencies for that for those people. Then and and you know, perhaps these people. Are aware, perhaps they're not, of this idea of co-regulation—that it's possible to co-regulate another—and um, I'm just—I just want to kind of throw that piece in there as well. If you, if you have considered that, and you know, what would you say for the for those people? Like, you know, do you? Because this is in some ways, been um, something that's been coming up for me and my partner lately. Like, you know, w- we we can co-regulate one another, and then there's also your set of needs which you have responsibility for so there's this kind of like okay on one side i'm responsible for my needs and getting them met and then another side i can help co-regulate you too and finding that balance is an interesting place so would you speak to that for for um people in relationships of really any kind but yeah
1: yes and there's a huge piece of not taking things personally because we're all on our own journey really struggling trying to find our own way plotting along you know, and when we use our exercises and skill set, I might get in an argument in the morning with my partner and then go to a meditation group and come back with a completely different approach or mindset because I've changed the state that I'm in, which is important. And as you ask about partners and co regulation, another word is, you know, enmeshment, feeling too reliant. And what we know from the trauma research with co regulation is. That a lot of doctors wouldn't say to mothers, cry it out anymore. Um, because what we know is in adolescence and child development, that the parent has to co regulate with the child in order for the child to ever learn how to auto regulate. But a lot of us didn't know that in terms of the brain research 30 years ago. And so um, a lot of us who didn't get those regulation needs met as a child, then it just automatically start to do that with a partner Um, start to assume the partner will regulate them and um, you know what I think is interesting as well is that we know in terms of trauma survival responses we don't just have fight fight freeze we also have fawn which is people pleasing you know Making sure you do the right thing so daddy doesn't get angry and break something, or um, really learning to neglect and ignore your needs. That is the fawn response. And a lot of us did that. So it's a really fun new coined term that's being used. And I think, you know, it's not always about love, but about committing to grow with someone and know that, you know, my own experience, I'm not here to fall in love with the sexy, sleek, (laughs) you know like almost like navy seal like has it all together aspect of my partner but also the angry and the confused and the three-year-old and the 70-year-old wise man and same for me the girl who's pulling her hair out in the corner or the girl who's confused and scared or the girl who's angry and me not knowing how to garden will take a you know, pipe, uh, take a shovel and start going at the ground and like break a pipe. And he'll just laugh and say, like, I love you. Like, I know you don't actually know that water pipes are even a thing. Um, And then the person who can get up and speak to people. And and so I I don't really think it's fair when we go into a a relationship and we're expected to only be allowed to love or fall in love with 3%, 10% of that person, because my four year old lives in me. And sometimes she controls me and that's the part of keeping her at bay. My seven-year-old lives in me. My 27-year-old lives in me. And so I think when it comes to co-regulation, one thing a brain trainer told me once when people are just starting to train their nervous system is that a lot of us, because we're used to people pleasing and others reactions um, being what allow us to feel safe in the room rather than us allowing ourselves to feel safe in the room. We'll have 50% of our awareness on the other person and 50% of awareness on ourselves. And that when we're first starting to train our system. We should really have 40% awareness on them, 60% awareness on our own physical body and and sensory needs. But for me, it was starting at like 80% or he actually said like 80% on yourself, keep your awareness on yourself. Are you squishing? Are you squeezing your tush? Are you a dog with a tail curled under? Are you holding your shoulders in? Are you biting your lips? Are you clenching your jaw? And then 20% of awareness on that person and being able to ex- explain. You know, I had a woman in here the other day. She's like, I hate that sometimes I have to just take a deep breath when I'm talking to a family member. And how do I explain that to them? And, you know, I can say, like, I gave her an example. I really want to be here with you. I really want to be connected to this conversation. And I need to take a moment to make sure I stay comfortable and engaged so that I don't um, forget to take care of my body while I'm enjoying this conversation, you know, and it's hard to be unapologetic and know that your partner will forgive you and, and not take things too personally. If you're like, I've been sitting and my back's hurting, I need to get up and move around. And if you need to keep circulating, please call a girlfriend or a mentor and circulate with her, especially as males. You know, women, we circulate in the 1950s or something around that time. They said the huge depression swept the United States because the um, washer machine was invented and women used to sit together and wash the clothes and we circulate like the moon. We reflect back at each other. You know, the old school saying is the men would go and accomplish something on a hunt. They'd get something done. And then they would work through their issues through taking action and solving a problem. Women just talk, 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 talk. And for man, for a man to be responsible to be that way is not really sustainable. So being able to hand off the load, especially if you're a compassionate or highly sensitive man, or, you know, used to co-regulating rather than auto-regulating, sharing the load and in a loving way saying like, I don't have that much space today, but can you circulate with someone else? Um, can you circulate? Can you call these people? You know, um, those are some of my ideas for that.
0: Yeah, it makes sense that you'd really just have the more communicative element present. You know, just really, yeah, it's a, it's a hugely helpful to think about that. It can be as simple as just you know being able to, to describe your experience and share, hey, this is where I'm at, and. I'd like to be maybe in this place, but this is what I need. But ultimately just you know, taking some gesture or action that says, I'm not going to you know, jeopardize my needs to stay in, the, in this uncomfortable situation. I, I need something and that might be over here. It might be um, something we can agree with sharing, but I mean, ultimately you need to be able to express that peace to the other person or um, be in touch with that for that to happen.
1: And that can be hard if you are ashamed for expressing your needs as a child. That can be right. very hard. You can see it in the oldest from the youngest siblings too, in how they communicate to others. And, you know, ex- not expecting this to happen overnight, being able to speak in I statements rather than you statements, knowing it's not the other person's fault if they're used to interacting with you a certain way, but you realize you need to be interacted with in a new way for yourself, for your own system. You need a little bit more alone time. You need them to learn to get that need met from someone else or in a different way and, Mm -hmm. you know, reshape the relationship and say that in an I statement rather than a you statement. But from using me as an example, it might take me years to learn to get better and to be patient with our partner as we shift because this is decades of patterning. So, you know, it just depends. Everyone's different and um, as we shift, it's really about that forgiveness piece and that patience piece and that um, gentleness piece and knowing that that, that my partner is doing the best that they can. And um, so am I. And I'm really imperfect, you know, at shifting. I remember a therapist told me um, I was getting older and my dad would come in my room and give me a kiss. And in my 20s, you know, come in and he sacrificed so much. He deserves to leave at six a.m. and give his daughter a kiss, even if she's in her twenties. But I didn't like it because I, you know, wear wigs and I have all these things. I want to sleep naked, and it felt like a jarring moment for me when I was still sleeping because I sleep until eight or nine or something at this time at that time. And my therapist said, "You have to tell him, you know, you don't feel comfortable with him coming in in the morning, even though it's his house. You're allowed to have that boundary." And so he was a little upset and then things were cool for like two weeks and things were like cool again. Like we were getting like, we were better. And then he started doing it again. And I'm like, it took me so much energy and courage to create that boundary and that need. And then he is doing it again. She's like, you're going to need to reiterate that boundary and need so much. Don't think you can just tell them once and they'll remember, you know? And so, um, I think that's also important too. I know for myself I have to be reminded of things that my partner shares with me. And um, none of us are gonna be perfect at this, you know. Yeah or just a, learning.
0: Yeah, that's a really good good point to highlight there about just giving each other time. And yeah, I mean, it's not that you need like low expectations, but just being realistic about, you know, hey, this is like we're all humans here. It's gonna we're gonna take a few commands and yeah seeing seeing that everything you know nothing is really perfect so yeah it's beautiful I love what you shared there about partnership I think that's really really a nice way to tie in your work I feel like we you know we have a lot more we can end up talking about and I want to be mindful of your time I know you're going to step into something here in a little bit um is there anything else that you would like to share to kind of wrap our conversation up today It's such an honor to
1: share and chat you know I think I hope I'm 70 and just so bright eyed and bushy tailed and student teachable oriented for the work because I I just have so many questions and in my own life and, and I'm curious, you know, how to live out these ideas because I never wanted to be an armchair anthropologist. I wanted to be in Papua New Guinea, smelling the smells, eating the food and so we have this, these theories, we have these ideas, and to put them into practice is a lot. We have a lot of expectations from society of how to interact, of how to live, of how to spend our money, of how to spend our time. And so these are hard questions to ask, to shift. I mean, my friends know that like they can't really reach me on the weekends. It's kind of odd in my late 20s <laughs> um, that I... but. I had to start to learn and my partner met me and I had brain hit my brain. I won't say brain injury, but I had hit my head pretty hard when I fell 25 feet insomnia. He came in and I, when the sun went down, my, my lights were still off. I wouldn't turn my lights on. I'd use candlelight because I knew I had to signal my brain to make melatonin because I was struggling. And so I was different. And I'd say most importantly, When it comes to emotional intelligence, allow yourself to be different and honor that about yourself, honor your differences and share with others. Because I work with a lot of high performing individuals. This is how I perform. Like if we think about Djokovic, if we think about Nadal, if we think about these famous athletes, nobody questions Michael Phelps about his routines. Nobody questions him because he's the best. And so how can you ask that of yourself? You know, like you don't have to explain yourself to anyone. Of course, if you live with someone, and you're a partner, you're in a partnership. Yeah, you might want to learn about what your roommate is doing and why it's shifting and to hear that. But, you know, that you're allowed to investigate what works for you. And if you can gently explain it to others, this is what's helping me. I've had some issues and I want to Regain the sense of myself and I'm trying out different things. The last thing I think I'll share is that what we know with trauma survivors is the amygdala, a smoke alarm, nonverbal, sensory oriented in the limbic system of the brain, travels over when there's an issue, it goes off, travels over the hippocampus like a bridge to the neocortex, prefrontal cortex, and it will help us differentiate when we're in our. Frontal lobes, is that a stick or a snake? Oh, it's a stick, everything's fine. A lot of us who've had a lot of trauma will have the amygdala firing and it will go over the hippocampus, the bridge, so often that the bridge kind of shrinks or gets a little broken, <laughs> and it doesn't reach the frontal lobes to differentiate differentiate, to rationalize. Everything's fine. And so the way that we rebuild the hippocampus is by doing novelty activities by doing new things. That's the last thing you want to do, you know, and everyone wants to take it at their own pace. I fell 25 feet. The last thing I want to do is hike. The last thing I wanted to do was walk. I was, I had so much nerve damage. I didn't want anything else to go numb. So learning to do new things and show your nervous system. I can handle this. I'm safe. I can handle this. Sometimes I'll still walk around pulling my hair, like what's going on, what's going on completely out of my frontal lobe, because I'm stuck in I don't know if this is safe or not. It could be anything. And it could be because I'm up to here that day and I haven't had enough regulating that day. But so what I think is really important is to realize that we can repair the brain. Neuroplasticity is a thing. And that we have to get the physical system the the limbic system where the amygdala lives in a calm, safe state through temperature, through sound, through breathing, different somatic resourcing, in order for the neocortex to come back online and for us to rationalize, for us to have reasoning, and to not be hard on ourselves when we get stuck in a loop because it's normal and the system's trying to protect itself. Um, and what's most important is changes, radical changes in our physiology in order to have mental clarity. Um, I wanted to share that little bit as we ended.
0: Nice. Thank you so much for sharing everything you have today. It's been very nice having you on today and just getting to know you a little bit more and hearing so much of your wisdom. You've got so much to impart and yeah, you're, you're not just kind of exploring the theory and the science and um, but you're going to the experiential learning and and working on yourself. And then also, you know, getting into the, the experience um, of so many other cultures and and different nervous systems. It's a really unique perspective to have, to be able to bring in so many different views of, oh, this is how these people do this here, or, you know, how they're handling their own emotional states. And yeah, just, you've got so much to offer. So thank you for, um, speaking to it today and, uh, look forward to having you on again, potentially down the road and, and taking this a little further, Um,
1: such an honor to meet with you. Thank you, Keenan, And thank you to your partner. Thank you to your family. Thank you to your ancestors, all those who have made you, you and your incredible genetics and the hard work you have shared to put on this work, um, this podcast and others work and um, create more connections in this world. I honor and appreciate you.
0: Likewise. Yes. I'll be stepping into more of my uniqueness around my nervous system and emotional habits because of you. So thanks.
1: Oh, yes. And you guys can find me at syndesiwellness.com, S-Y-N-D-E-S-I, or June Syndesi on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Um, And um, I have programs and one-on-one sessions for nervous system regulation, stress management, and emotional eating and nutrition. So just let me know if I can be a resource or have service in any way.
0: Thank you.